This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Joseph Goldstein. Joseph has been leading insight and loving-kindness meditation retreats worldwide since 1974. He's a co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society, the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies, and the Forest Refuge. Which sounds true, Joseph has published a new book and a new audio program. The book is called Mindfulness a practical guide to awakening, where he delves deeply into the Satipatthana Sutra. It's also a book in which he shares the wisdom of his four decades of teaching and practice, a book that will serve as a lifelong companion for anyone committed to mindful living and the realization of inner freedom. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Joseph and I spoke about his definition of mindfulness— a definition that goes beyond just being in the present moment. We also talked about the realization of impermanence as it relates to mindfulness, not as a concept, but as a lived experience. Joseph also offered us an overview of the Satipatthana Sutra and its structure and importance. Here's the first part of my conversation with Joseph Goldstein, on the deeper dimensions of mindfulness. Joseph, to begin with, I'd love to know how you first encountered the practice of mindfulness. Back in the 1960s, when you couldn't necessarily find mindfulness teachers readily available in the same way that they are today, mindfulness now being introduced in corporate wellness programs and in all kinds of ways. But tell us back in the 1960s when you were in your 20s, I think, that you were first introduced to the practice of mindfulness. I first met or came into contact with the practice when I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. Um, I finished college and was anxious to get out and see the world. And this was in the first years of the Peace Corps. Um, they sent me to Thailand. I was teaching English in Bangkok. And I started going to some discussion groups led by an English and an Indian monk in English for, for the Westerners who were uh, living in Bangkok. And I studied philosophy in college. Uh, so I had this very inquisitive mind. And at these discussion groups, I asked so many questions that people actually stopped coming because I was, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, there's always one person like that in the group. And anyway, one of the monks suggested uh, that I try meditating. And he gave me uh, a few instructions and also the name of a book by Niyana Ponikatera, it was called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, which was one of the early books on mindfulness teachings. So I had the instructions, and I read the book, and was very excited by it all. And I went back to my room, and I got some paraphernalia together, and I sat, and I sat, set my alarm clock for five minutes, because I didn't want to sit too long. Uh, but something really uh, important happened in that five minutes. And that was that I saw that there was a way to look into my mind, just following these very simple instructions, uh, that there was a way to look in as well as a way of looking out through it. So I just got very excited. I was, this was a whole new world that was opening up. Um, I was so excited. I, for a while, I was inviting my friends over to watch me meditate. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't come back too often. Uh, but that was the beginning. 
you know, it's just so, so exciting for me. And um, to come into touch with a methodology for looking at my mind. Uh, so that was really the beginning. And as I mentioned, now here, you know, 40 years later, 45 years later, 50 years later, there are so many different ways for people to learn mindfulness, and it's being introduced into the culture in a lot of different ways. And I've heard different people express concerns. You know, we live in the age of mic-mindfulness, like McDonald's. It's just this speedy delivery, and is this really helping people in a deep way, or is it just a surface type of mindfulness? And I'd be curious to know here at the beginning of our conversation, if you have concerns, if it worries you at all about the way mindfulness is being taught and introduced, or if you're simply pleased with it, or what, you know, what your perspective is. I think that it's, it's helping people, which uh, I gather it is, and that's why it's getting so widespread. Uh, it's a good thing. Uh, I think there is um, the tendency, or what will inevitably happen, is that um, the depth of the practice might not be either understood or taught in those settings. But that's not a problem for me as long as there is a, uh, one might say, a core group, you know, or some number of people who really go into more depth into the practice, um, you know, and, and a whole mindfulness, understand mindfulness, as the Buddha taught it, as a vehicle for awakening. So as long as that's preserved, um, uh, then I think the more general application of it um, is good. You know, it it helps people de-stress and just come to a little more ease in their lives. Um, But the purpose of uh, my writing, you know, my new book, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening, uh, was precisely to reclaim the term and be a reminder that its fundamental purpose, as the Buddha taught it, really was for liberation, for enlightenment. Do you feel that there are any distortions in the way mindfulness is being presented in the West today that you would want to point out? Like, you know, it's one thing that if it's just not deep enough, but it's another thing if it's actually presented in ways that are considered distortions. That might be concerning. Uh, I, I don't really know, you know, because I'm not present uh, for what these presentations of it. Uh, but it's not overly concerning. Uh, it's even in its uh, most basic form, which doesn't touch the depth and may even not be exactly mindfulness, but it's training people's attention. Uh, and there's a difference between attention and mindfulness. Uh, still, it's a good thing, you know. And so long as long as there are people, you know, in our culture and our society who have a clear understanding of of the depth of its meaning and presenting it, whether it's in you know teaching in book form or in retreats, uh, as long as that's preserved, I don't think there's there's so much harm. Uh, at least, you know, that's my current impression. Sure. You'll see over some years. Sure. Uh, but, I mean, you know, encouraging people to be more attentive in their lives, even, you know, in a very simple way, I think it's a good thing. Okay, so you're drawing a distinction between attention, of the practice of attention, and mindfulness, the definition of mindfulness that you offer in your work. So help our listeners understand that distinction and, and really how you're defining the use of this term, mindfulness. Uh, well, this, this is diving right into uh, to the heart of it in a way. Um, somebody once asked me, you know, to define mindfulness in just a few, a few words. Uh, and it's not that easy to do because it's a bit like asking, you know, what is art? or what is love. The most common definition, I think, and one that really needs expanding, uh, I think most people would say, in a general way, being mindful means living in the present. 
that's being in the present moment. That's the beginning. That's that's like the foundation, the first step. But being in the present by itself is not yet mindfulness. And I'd like to give a few examples. Uh, one of my favorites is um, that of watching uh, black labs run around. You know, it's one of my favorite dogs. They're very playful, very friendly. They're running around. They're in the present moment. They're, they're completely in the present, but they don't seem to be very mindful. You know, they're, they're literally being led around by the nose. So mindfulness has to mean something more than being present. Again, being present is the first step, it's the foundation, but what else is mindfulness? So then, unlike a black lab, you know, we might say that mindfulness is recognizing what is happening in the present moment. You know, so it's kind of a meta-awareness, M-E-T-A, kind of a stepping back and knowing what we're observing or what, we're, what our experience is. But that recognition is still not quite mindfulness because we can recognize what's happening either in the world outside or in our own bodies or our minds, but the recognizing it through a filter of different attitudes of the mind, some of which may be unwholesome. For example, we may be recognizing uh, a pain in the body. We know it's a pain. So we're in the present, we recognize what it is, but we may be viewing it or experiencing it with the filter of aversion and not liking, wanting to get rid of it. So in that case, we're in the present, there's recognition, but it's still not mindfulness. And so this points to uh, a greater understanding of what this faculty of mind is. Because mindfulness means being aware understanding what the experience is with a mind that's free of greed, free of attachment, free of aversion or ill will, free of delusion. And so this is really the ethical dimension of mindfulness, uh, which I think is sometimes lost in you know the popular the popularization of mindfulness. And and we might say going back to your first question, this not so much a danger as a severe limitation if it's taught without this ethical dimension. Namely, that mindfulness is always wholesome. It's always, skill, it's always a skillful state of mind. And then if you were to put all of that into a definition, do you have, do you, do you have a working definition? I mean, this is not, doesn't exactly roll off the tongue here. <laughs> it's all of that. You could say... Um, um, I'm trying this out on you for the first time, so we'll see. Uh, we could say mindfulness is being aware of the present moment experience without greed, without attachment, without aversion, without delusion. You know, and, and so we're in we're in the present moment uh, with a great deal of clarity of understanding. Now, for your new book on mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening, you focus on this one particular sutra, the Satipatthana Sutra. So tell us a little bit about how you encountered that sutra. I mean, it seems to me that you sort of fell in love with it, that you fell in love with this text. That's what I feel from the book, because Mm -hmm. you spend so much detailed attention unpacking every word in it. But tell us a little bit how you first encountered this text. Well, I actually first encountered it in that book I mentioned uh, a little earlier on uh, that I read in the Peace Corps, because it's this sutta, the Satipatthana Sutta, or the Buddha's discourse on the four ways of establishing mindfulness. Uh, That was the center of that book, uh, which gave me the first instructions in how to practice. Uh, And so from the very beginning, uh, I understood it, and it is generally understood, as 
the basic methodology the Buddha gave for putting his teachings into practice in terms of the meditative journey, meditative discipline. This is how to do it. And in the beginning of the discourse, the Buddha makes a very bold declaration. Uh, he says, this is the direct way, you know, for the overcoming of sorrow, of grief, of lamentation, uh, direct path to awakening. So the Buddha himself is saying, this discourse is, is at the centerpiece of putting his teachings into practice. So over the years, um, as I studied with different teachers, all of them referenced this text, because this text <clears throat> is the source for all the many methods of insight meditation, of Vipassana meditation. They all, uh, they all draw from this particular uh, discourse. Yeah, in recent years, uh, I also read a book by a German vicar, Analio, uh, who wrote his PhD thesis in Sri Lanka on this discourse, the Satipatthana Sutta, and there's a wonderful book that he wrote called Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. And in reading that, and this was just a few years ago, uh, I was inspired by the level of detail that he brought to the analysis of the discourse, and that inspired me to begin giving talks uh, at our Forest Refuge uh, Retreat Center uh, on the Sutta. Initially, I thought I would just be giving, you know, four or five or six talks on it, but as I went through it line by line and, and appreciated the, the wealth of Dharma in these few pages of text, it ended up being 47 talks, you know, hour-long talks. So it just unfolded as I as I went into it and explored it in that level of detail. Now, you defined the sutra when you talked about it as the four ways of establishing mindfulness. And often when people refer to the Satipatthana Sutta, they call it the four foundations of mindfulness. And in the beginning of your book, you make this distinction that there's this shift in language by thinking about it as the four ways of establishing mindfulness, that this is an important, subtle distinction to make versus the four foundations of mindfulness. So can you help us understand why this slight shift in translation is important? Uh, well, let me say that from a, a scholarly point of view, which which I am not, I'm not a scholar, but in in a classical Buddhist scholar, but in reading about it and, and the translations, both of those translations are valid, and I think either one could be used, and the case could be made for translating Satipatthana either as the four foundations or the four ways of establishing mindfulness. Uh, I, I appreciated uh, the latter because it gave, seemed to make it a little more vital and vibrant and not quite so static, not so uh, emphasizing the object of meditation, but actually the understanding that these are the, field, these are the four fields. In, in fact, the, the Pali word uh, is pastures. These are the four pastures in which we can learn to establish awareness or mindfulness. So it gives a little more emphasis to, for me to uh, the practice side, the active side, rather than simply seeing it as, okay, these are the objects of meditation. Uh, and so it's also, it's also a little more alive to me, translating it the four ways of establishing mindfulness. But as I say, I think either one is, is correct. It's just a a slight difference in translation. Now, Joseph, how is it that you feel a sense of confidence that this is really a teaching that comes directly from the Buddha? And maybe maybe it's a little taboo to ask that, but I always wonder when someone says, you know, these were some of the first, you know, teachings of the Buddha, the words of the Buddha. And I just think, really? Maybe. <laughs> well, of course. One doesn't really know, you know, but 
as far as we can tell and as far as Buddhist scholars can tell who have been uh, investigating this question. Uh, it's fairly... Um, it's fairly common. It's a fairly common understanding that the texts in the Pali language that have been preserved are the earliest, uh, or among the earliest uh, teachings of the Buddha. You know, and originally the the teachings were uh, preserved in an oral tradition, and then I forget the date exactly, but at some point they were. Some hundreds of years after the Buddha's death, they were uh, first written down, I believe, in Sri Lanka. Um, and so as far as we know, you know, and as far as the, the scholarly inquiry uh, suggests, that these texts really do go back to the earliest times. Uh, sometimes people raise the question, well, if, you know, for hundreds of years it was just an oral tradition, might not a lot have been changed or altered or gotten lost. And again, from people who are really expert in this field, uh, there's, I think, a greater appreciation of the accuracy uh, of the oral tradition uh, in those times, because whole groups of monks, and perhaps nuns as well, uh, <coughs> recited, committed to memory certain parts of the text. And so there was kind of group reinforcement of um, of the teachings and, you know, the ongoing corrections of mistakes. And I've heard some people say that actually there's more liability to error in written form than in the oral tradition, which struck me as quite interesting. Uh, just saying that once something is written down, and if it's an error, then the error just gets uh, passed on. So again, I'm, you know, this is not my field of expertise, but um, it's my understanding that, as far as we know, these teachings do go back to the earliest times. Okay, so can you give us an overview of the Satipatthana Sutra for someone who's brand new to them? Give us an introduction. What's covered? Okay, but before I do this, one other comment to your last question. Uh, when you say what gives me confidence, what, what gives me confidence that these are the teachings of the Buddha, I gave a long, perhaps a little rambling answer. The most succinct answer is that they work. You know, having put them into practice uh, and then seen for myself, as many people have done, you know, over the centuries, as we practice in this way they bring the desired results. And so that's that's the best affirmation, uh, a very pragmatic one. You know, they really do help to free the mind. Um, so uh, uh, an overview. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Um, basically, the Buddhist said, you know, in this discourse, uh, that there are these four fields uh, for pastors, for ways of establishing mindfulness, and they are the, being mindful of the body. And then he lists there. There are quite a few different specific uh, techniques, you could say, or methods for investigating the body. And then he says the second field of awareness is mindfulness of feeling. Now this is an interesting uh, area to explore because feeling means something quite specific in the Buddhist teachings, which is a bit different than how we use the term in English. In the Buddhist teachings, feeling is the translation of a Pali word, Vedana, which means the experience of an object being either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. So it's that quality in the mind or in the heart, you could say that tastes the pleasantness or unpleasantness and neutrality of each moment's experience. This is given such importance in the discourse, and it's something we learn about a lot in our meditation practice. These feeling, we say feeling tones, perhaps that's, in more uh, specific translation, 
These feeling tones are so important because it's these feelings, these Vedana, that condition, when we're not mindful of them, that condition, you know, desire in the mind and aversion and delusion. You know, just a very common sense, simple example. When we experience something as being pleasant, generally, conventionally, just in our ordinary lives, when we experience something as being pleasant, we like it, we want more of it. We like to hold on to the pleasantness. And when we feel something is unpleasant or painful, we try to avoid it or push it away. And when something is neutral, we often tend to stick out, not pay attention. And so not being mindful of these feelings, unknowingly we're, we're often strengthening these unwholesome states of mind of, of greed or clinging, you know, of ill will, aversion, irritation, annoyance, you know, and delusion, dullness of mind. So mindfulness, this, this is the second field of mindfulness. This becomes very liberating as we become more mindful uh, of these feeling tones. The third foundation of mindfulness, the Buddha called mindfulness of mind. And that is, again, very interesting. It turns our attention, turns the mindfulness back onto the mind itself and to notice whether the mind is filled with greed, you know, or aversion or delusion or not. And we're simply mindful of it. So there's, there's not a reactive judgment to it. We simply are turning the awareness, becoming aware, waking up to what is actually going on in our mind. Mindfulness of the mind is also noticing whether the mind is distracted, you know, or restless, or contracted, you know, in dullness. So this is the third field of mindfulness where we begin to observe, you would say, the, the quality of our mind. And the last of the fourth field or way of establishing mindfulness is very broad. It's, it's, it's the largest of, <coughs> uh, section of the discourse. And it's very hard to translate into English. It's called mindfulness of dharmas. And dharma is, is a Sanskrit or Pali word which uh, has many meanings depending on the context. Uh, it could mean truth, it could mean law, natural law, mean specifically the teachings of the Buddha. So mindfulness of Dharma, I think, is best translated as mindfulness of categories of experience. So, for example, included in this is being mindful when the hindrances are present, of desire, of aversion, of sloth and torpor, restlessness, doubt. Mindful of the factors of awakening, when they're present, mindful of the six sense spheres, mindfulness of the five aggregates. These are all conceptual frameworks that the Buddha used to highlight different aspects of our experience. And this section of the sutta concludes with mindfulness of the Four Noble Truths, which is at the very heart of his teaching. You know, the truths of uh, the unsatisfying nature or suffering, the cause of the suffering, the end, and the path to the end, the path to liberation. So in going through this, you know, in a rather lengthy explanation, you can see just how rich this sutta is. It just includes, in some way, I think it includes the totality of the Buddhist teaching. There's so much to explore and so many ways to explore it. Um, so that's, that's kind of a, a, a brief overview yeah. of a very rich, just, just a wealth of drama in these few pages. Now, Joseph, I want to make sure I understand something, which is in, in your opening attempt at a working definition of mindfulness, you introduce this idea that there's this ethical dimension, that when we're mindful we would be free in those moments of greed and aversion and delusion, if I understood you correctly. So what happens when we're feeling something? Like, let's say I totally hate something or other that's happening mm-hmm. in my experience. Can't I be right. mindful of how much I hate this thing? Aren't I being mindful? Well, 
It's really interesting. I think this would be a good experiment for you or other listeners to uh, explore. Suppose there's hate in the mind or anger in the mind or whatever, whatever the, what we call unwholesome state may be. In the moment that we're actually mindful, being mindful of the hate or mindful of the anger, in that moment of mindfulness, we are actually not hating and not angry. Because in that moment, we're not identified with that state. And so it's, a, it's you could say, a settling back or a resting back in the awareness of it rather than being lost in it. Uh, and so it's a very different experience. Um, so well, the practical way of, of exploring this, one of the techniques for strengthening mindfulness, and this is just one tool of a, of a particular tradition of meditation, uh, but it has proved very effective for many people, and that is to make a soft mental note of whatever the object is. So, for example, if there's anger, if there's hate, one might note, you know, anger, anger, hate, hate, you know, desire, whatever it may be. And it's, it's interesting to turn the attention to the noting mind and to see that in that moment of noting or noticing in a mindful way, the mind is not caught up in that particular unwholesome state. And so again, you know, we have to we have to check this out in our own experience, but this is what makes mindfulness so freeing. You know, one of the things that's really interesting to me, and I mean, there's so much here, but when I hear you talk about something like anger in the mind, you know, it, it's clear to me from my experience how anger can often obscure what's going on in a situation and how it can also be so harmful when expressed unskillfully. But I also have really discovered something that I might call healthy anger, you know, a, health, a healthy experience of drawing a boundary in a situation, that kind of thing. So I, I'm curious, in this teaching, what about something like healthy anger? How does that fit in? Does it? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting that uh, you could say the the, uh, the positive side of the energy of anger is uh, discerning wisdom. Usually anger arises when we're seeing something, uh, hopefully clearly, sometimes we're, we're misperceiving, but very often we're seeing something clearly, uh, you know, that may be harmful in one way or another. And out of that discernment, you know, our first response may be anger. So the skillful, the skillful understanding, I think, would be to take the message that the anger is bringing to us, oh, a boundary needs to be set. This, you know, there's injustice here. And so we take the message of the anger and act on the message without getting caught up or lost in the negativity of the emotion. Because uh, anger is a burning. I'll, I'll give you a, a practical example of you know, how I saw this at work. Years ago, I taught uh, retreats almost every year for about 10 years to environmental activists, you know, who are really in the front line of environmental work. And it was very interesting. Many of, uh, many of them came to the retreat, and what, uh, what came up in the retreat a lot was that for many people, the motivation for their work was anger at the harm being done. You know. But what also was clear that was that the anger is not a sustaining motivation. And that's why so many people who are doing that work and caught up in anger as the response get burned out. Because it can't be sustained and it's ultimately harmful to oneself. So the challenge is 
to really see a game, to see what's the message of the anger. The message is some harm is being done. I want to change it in some way. I want to take action. But can our motivation be, you know, can we transform the motivation, for example, from anger to compassion? Can compassion be the motivation for taking action? Compassion for the suffering that those harmful actions are causing. Compassion is a much more sustained, much more sustainable and ennobling quality of the heart. And so this is this is just an example of how yes, there is an element of anger which is helping us see something clearly, but it's not uh, a skillful energy with which to uh, motivate the action. I'll, I'll just give you another example. You know, suppose we're on the recipient of angry energy. And even if, if you know, perhaps we've done something that, that was harmful in a certain way and somebody gets angry at us, how do, we, how do we typically respond to the energy of anger coming at us? I think very often we may experience of being hurtful. Very often we get defensive you know, trying to protect ourselves because it's a kind of violence coming at us. So we might get defensive and set up some kind of protection and maybe even get angry back. So it's not a very um, fertile field for communication. It would be much more skillful if whatever the person had to say to us was said in a way that we could more easily hear. You know, And so just on a very pragmatic level, uh, anger may catch, you know, may catch our attention right away, but it's not really a skillful, um, it's not a skillful field for accomplishing um, our aim. And it, it's, it's damaging to ourselves. Again, we, we, we can definitely take uh, what the message is, though, because very often strong action doesn't need to be taken. But we can do it really with a uh, with a compassionate heart. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to SoundsTrue.com backslash free gifts. That's SoundsTrue.com backslash free gifts. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Now, Joseph, I thought one of the things that might be an interesting way for us to structure our conversation would be to take one teaching from each of the four pastures, four fields that are focused on in this text, and find one teaching within each that we could highlight as a way of introduction for our listeners, knowing that the actual full book, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening, covers so much more in each section. And I thought we could start with the body and that I'd love to have you talk us through the section of the text that talks about how we can be mindful of a corpse in decay as part part of our way of practicing mindfulness of the body. Of all the many sections. Interesting that, that was the section that, that drew me. <laughs> well, you know, in, in ancient India, and even to some extent today, it was a lot easier to do that. You know, it's in, in my time in India, you know, one could go to the artists and uh, uh, see, you know, the burning gas and the burning of the corpses, and death is not... Is, is more out in the open uh, in that culture. Here, it's a little harder to see. 
Um, so just a few suggestions that people might have to be creative in how to apply this. Um, one group of our teacher trainees uh, out on the web post, there was an arrangement. This is not a fact that corpse in decay, but it's well, it's kind of decay. They they went to a hospital uh, and observed an autopsy, and so they really were seeing, you know, the the face of death and the nature of the body as it was opened up, and they could see all the organs and, you know, what death is the beginning of decay. Uh, so that was a very um, a very powerful experience uh, for people who did that. It's not always so easy to arrange. We don't we don't often have the opportunity, but for people interested, we might explore that. A more common way, um, I don't know if this would probably wouldn't be so available in the city, but living in the country, um, it's it's readily available, and that is to see the decaying corpses of animals killed on the road. You know, often it might be a squirrel or a rabbit or some animal that was that was killed by a car. Uh, and it's very interesting to watch one's reaction and to, for me to watch my own reaction because it's very unpleasant. You know, it's, it's, it, ta- it takes an act of will to actually stop and see and look at this corpse which you know, of an animal which has been killed and often mangled and squashed and not pleasant. But it does reveal in a very immediate way um, just the nature of this body. This is what the body is subject to. You know, the essential vulnerability of it. And of course, the extreme of vulnerability is death. and so I use that as a, um, you know, a modern day possibility for uh, applying this contemplation. I think in the time of the Buddha, it was probably much more accessible. Can you p- help people have a bit of a context? Why would contemplating, whether it's, you know, quote unquote, roadkill, as it's normally called, or a corpse in decay, Help us understand what kinds of insights would come from that. Yeah. (laughs) Why would one want to do this? (laughs) I think that's a fair question. Uh, One of the things that we see both in meditation, but also just in life, you know, if we're we're at all self-reflective, we begin to see very clearly uh, the strong identification most of us have with the body. You know, we take the body, the physical body, to be self, to be who I am. And we get very attached to our own bodies. We get attached to the bodies of others. And we're often not seeing or not uh, looking deeply into the nature of what this body is. What is it that we call the body? You know, one of the things from the autopsy, or we can just know from, uh, you know, from books. If we could, if we could see the internal organs of the body, you know, the organs and the circulatory system and the skeletal system. If we could see on that level, there probably wouldn't be as much attachment to it. You know, we're, we wouldn't say, I'm the liver or I'm the gallbladder. But when we wrap it all up nicely in skin, it's like we create a nice little package. You know, it's wrapped up nicely in skin. And we don't really see or, or reflect on what's contained within it. Then it's very easy to become identified with it and attached to it. And the more attachment we have to it, the more we suffer as it does decay, as it inevitably will, as it gets sick, as it dies, as the corpse decays. 
Uh, and so it's just a way of helping us see the nature of the body, you know, the, the impersonal, vulnerable nature of it. And then we can actually live embodied with much less attachment, with much less clinging. So it's not that we, uh, you know, push it away or uh, we can really honor the body and take care of it. We need to take care of it, but also at the same time understand its essential nature so we don't get caught up in attachment and clinging, which can only, can only lead to suffering because the body will get older and it will decay and will die. These, these things are not a mistake. This is just nature. You know, this is nature at work. Um, so it helps us, really helps us get in tune with nature. Now, I do want to go through these four different areas of establishing mindfulness. But before we move on, I think it might be helpful to introduce what you refer to as the refrain in the Satipatthana Sutra, that there's a, a section that occurs... 13 times in the sutra. It made me think it's a little bit like the chorus in a song, mm-hmm. if you will. Do you think that's fair to call it the chorus? Oh, yeah, the Greek chorus, the poly chorus. Yeah. The so, so in this chorus, which we would hear after something like a teaching on contemplating a corpse, there are these different calls to contemplate. And I thought it might be helpful for you to really unpack this a bit for our listeners. So the first one is to contemplate our experience internally, externally, and also both internally and externally. Mm-hmm. So can you explain that? How we're mindful? Yeah. I, I, yeah. Before I do, I was just uh, I feel obliged to point out that um, in this section, mindfulness of the body Yeah. Uh, <laughs> There are much more accessible ways of being mindful, like being mindful of the breath and of sensations and of movement and of daily activities. So I wouldn't want people to uh, be put off by this notion that somehow uh, this contemplation of the decaying corpse is the heart of it. Fair enough. No, you're you're portraying my uh, bizarre eccentric. No, you're portraying my eccentricities here. Thank you, Joseph. Please be uh, please be true. And in fact, it's not one that we emphasize very much precisely <laughs> because it's not that easily accessible in these days. Uh, and more of the contemplation has to do with the everyday aspects of our physical experience. So internally, externally, and both. Really, it means exactly. This the literal meaning of it, that we contemplate all of these aspects uh, within ourselves, within our own bodies, you know, and whatever it is, whether it's the decaying decaying aspect or something as simple as the breath or different sensations that we feel or uh, walking, you know, the different postures is one of the contemplations of the body. And so we're mindful as we're walking, as we're standing, as we're sitting, we're mindful of that, we're mindful of our own daily activities, and also mindful of all of these things as other people are doing them. So we see somebody walking, and we're mindful you know, that they're walking, of how they're walking. And it's quite interesting, the effect of this mindfulness externally the effect that has on our own minds. And I had I had two interesting experiences of this, and they're both they're really different aspects of the same thing. One was in you know being part of a Japanese tea ceremony, and the other was uh, watching the performance of a particular Japanese classical dance. And in both situations the people performing the actions and the discipline of those particular activities involve such a degree of mindful precision. You know, it's every movement was done with tremendous care and grace. And simply be 
being mindful, being aware of other people being that mindful created a very strong mindfulness and concentration in myself. You know, so <clears throat> that's, that's just an example of how mindful, being mindful externally can affect us. Um, if we're non-mindfulness, if we're not mindful externally, on the other side, you know, if we're around very agitated people, if we are mindful externally, then we're simply aware, oh, this person is agitated. But if we're not, if we're not mindful in that way, then their agitation often becomes contagious. You know, when we're around very agitated people, we might find ourselves getting agitated. And so the mindfulness externally really is a great protection. It allows us to stay at ease with whatever the circumstances externally are. And then it's just being mindful of both. You know, so at times we turn our attention to ourselves, sometimes to others, and to both. Now, what I thought was so interesting about this is often when I hear people talk about mindfulness, it seems like they're talking about some attention they're paying to their own internal experience. I, I don't. I don't often hear people talking about being mindful of what's happening with other people or in the room or what might be happening more broadly. I, this external component isn't something that I normally hear pointed out in teachings on mindfulness. Well, it, it's very often isn't, and that's why I wanted to highlight in the book, you know, this particular aspect because it, I think. Generally speaking, it's not taught that often, uh, you know, and the emphasis is on, you know, mindfulness internally, which, of course, is the foundation. Uh, our internal experience is, you know, very accessible to us. Uh, and, uh, you know, there could be the liability if we try to be mindful externally before we've really established a certain strength of mindfulness, uh, it might tend to more distraction. It might more easily get lost. But in the end, as as it says in the in the discourse, we really want to be mindful of both, and it it just provides a wealth of uh, both opportunity to be mindful of the world around us and a way of staying in balance as we experience the external world. And then the uh, second part of the refrain here that you underscore is the idea that we contemplate the nature of impermanence, and not as a concept, but as a known experience. And I wonder if you can talk about that, this deep appreciation of impermanence as part of the practice of mindfulness. Really, this is this is the... Uh, one of the very essential pieces. Uh, because what's the point of being mindful? The point is that we learn something from what we're mindful of. And what we learn is the wisdom aspect. You know? And so as we pay attention to every aspect of our experience, we can help but see and this, this is another line from uh, many discourses of the Buddha, when he says, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Now, that's a very profound teaching. In fact, very often people would hear that one line and get enlightened. Because if we could really deeply realize that, that everything which has the nature to arise will also pass away, if we could see that deeply, then we wouldn't be clinging. We wouldn't be attached because we would know, you know, in such a profound way that things have the nature to arise and pass away. This is this is not a mistake. Or this, this is just how things are in nature. Um, there's a story of Suzuki Roshi, you know, who founded the uh, San Francisco Zen Center. And there was this one student who had listened to his lectures for years. 
And it said that, you know, the student came up to him one day and said, I've been listening to your lectures for so long, and I still don't understand them. Can you put the Buddhist teachings in a nutshell? And Suzuki Roshi thought for a moment, and he said, everything changes. And that's <clears throat> expressive of the same teaching. It's of core importance. Uh, because when we see that every single element of the body, of the mind, of our emotions, uh, of thoughts, of our senses, of the world, on every level, from the subatomic particle level to clusters of galaxies, you know, on every level of experience, things are in a state of constant flux and change. Now, what's surprising about this and why uh, it's emphasized both so much in the, the discourse, Sakyatana, and in our teaching, is that although we know this, we all know this conceptually, this is not an esoteric teaching. Everything changes. Everything arises and passes away. We could go up to anybody on the street and ask do things change, and everybody would say yes. But somehow, we are not often perceiving it directly. So we know it conceptually, but we're so caught up in the story of our lives that we're not paying attention in the moment's experience to the realization of things arising and passing away. And that's what our meditation practice uh, really highlights. Because only the direct experience of it, which has transformative value, it really deconditions grasping in the mind. And that's why it's given such, given such importance in this refrain, in this chorus, after each section. Joseph, how do you think you can help people bridge that gap between saying, yeah, 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 everything changes. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, and of course I know that. Come on, move on. Tell me, tell me something interesting. How do we bridge that gap so that it becomes this, as you say, lived realization? Well, it's really very simple because it's not a hidden truth. It's just remembering to pay attention to that aspect um, in our lives. And, and we might, to start with, just take a few very simple experiences, you know, as a way into the realization of this. For example, we might uh, practice remembering to be mindful of all, for a period of time, of sounds as they're arising. You know, we're hearing things all day long. Well, sounds are arising and passing away. Even the sound, for example, and on retreats, of course, we are often ringing bells, you know, to end, end the sittings or to begin some activity. Well, even within the sound of one striking of the bell, if we're really paying careful attention, we see even within, you know, that minute or two that the sound reverberates, there's constant change within that sound itself. You know, we begin to hear kind of the nuances, the vibrations. Or we might see the arising and passing away, the changing nature, uh, right with each breath. You know, there's an in-breath, it begins and it ends, and then there's an out-breath, and it begins and it ends. And then even within an in-breath, there are many changing sensations. Or within a step, within any movement that we make, you know, or the change of postures, just all the very ordinary activities of our lives uh, reveal or show us this truth of change. It, it's really not hard to do. It's just remembering to do it, you know, to to extricate ourselves from the momentum of our lives, where we kind of settle back for a moment and actually observe the nature of our experience. So, Joseph, before we leave the refrain here, this part of the text that occurs 13 times, is there anything else besides contemplating our experience internally, externally, in both, and this 
contemplation on the nature of impermanence that you think is important to emphasize that's brought forward in the refrain? Uh, I, there, there are just a couple of things. Uh, one is there is a line in the refrain that I found particularly helpful. It was actually quite transformative for my practice. And it's a line that I had read many times, but had not uh, really reflected on it deeply. And I hadn't put it into actual practice until a retreat I did a couple of years ago. And suddenly that line jumped out at me. Uh, It says, be mindful. And then in quotes, there is a body, unquote, to the extent necessary for clear mindfulness, for clear knowing and continuous mindfulness. So there are just within that one sentence, there's some very interesting aspects. First, be mindful, quote, there is a body. So the fact that that phrase, there is a body, is in quotes, suggests that we can use it almost as a mental note or as a mental reminder, either in sitting or walking or moving about. And this is how I put it into practice. I started saying in walking meditation, just reminding myself, oh, there is a body. There is a body. And it helped me just settle back into a general felt sense of the body, walking. Then to the extent necessary for clear knowing. Now, usually in our practice, or very often, uh, we're over-efforting. We think mindfulness takes this huge exertion. But the Buddha is saying in this line, be mindful, there's a body to the extent necessary for clear knowing. And what I discovered was it didn't take much effort at all. It was it was so simple and so relaxed. So I would be walking, there is a body, there's a body, and using that as the reminder to simply settle into the felt sense of the body as it walked. So it helped me realize more the effortless quality of awareness once we remember to be aware. You know, and so that was that was really helpful. Um, be mindful that there's a body to the extent necessary for clear knowing. Just the very simple awareness of what's happening and continuous mindfulness, the suggestion or the exhortation that we don't do this just for a moment or two, but we practice to remember as continuously as we can. Uh, so that's one one aspect of the teaching, uh, which which proved to be very helpful. Another line from the refrain, or, or a phrase from it, uh, living free of desire and discontent, not clinging to anything in the world, that being with experience free from desire and discontent really means free from clinging or attachment and aversion. But it suggests, or or the underlying meaning of it, uh, is that it suggests a mind that is concentrated. Because when these hindrances are not present, uh, then the mind settles into a natural concentration. And out of that concentrated, calm state, we can live in the world not clinging to anything. And of course, in that we experience a great ease. Now, you said this phrase, continuous mindfulness. I think often people think, you know, uh, I'm mindful during this 20-minute period, and now I'm going to be particularly mindful with this difficult person or this experience, but continuous mindfulness? Yes, that's why, that's why people come on retreat, you know, to, to actually get a taste of the possibility. Now, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, continuous mindfulness really is mindfulness brought to perfection. And we're all on the path, so we're all, uh, we may be somewhat short of absolute continuity, but one of the things that develops 
you know, both in our daily practice and also when people do come on meditation retreat, the instructions and the practice is to be mindful throughout the day, you know, from the moment we wake up till the moment we go to sleep. One of the things that's very uh, striking is that it's not hard to be mindful. It's hard to remember to be mindful. You know, and so really we are practicing remembering. And it is also interesting that one of the meanings of the Pali word sati, you know, which is in satipatthana, which is usually translated as mindfulness, but one of the meanings of sati, the literal meanings of that Pali word, is to remember. Uh, and that's really a very important part of it. We're practicing remembering to be aware. I'm talking with Joseph Goldstein, and this is the first half of our conversation about a new book that he's published called Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. It's a 460-page book in which he takes the Satipatthana Sutra and unpacks it in quite a bit of detail, and I will say depth. And it's fabulous, Joseph, you mentioned in the beginning of this first part of our conversation about how important it is for there to be practitioners who are keeping the depth of the tradition alive. And I really feel that in you and am grateful to you for your deep work and practice. Joseph Goldstein's book, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening, and an audio program, Mindfulness, Six Guided Practices for Awakening. Joseph has also made available through Sounds True the complete 47-session, 38-hour audio series called Abiding in Mindfulness. It has three volumes, one, two, and three, in which he teaches on this sutra in quite a bit of detail. We'll be back with part two of our conversation with Joseph Goldstein on the next episode of Insights at the Edge. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.